Welcome to Discovering Responsible Wealth. This is your host, Frank Congelos. It's a pleasure to be with you this week. You know, through the course of this month, we've been working on you know, different aspects of family wellness and also been looking at Older Americans Month. As we mentioned in last week's show, you know, the book of Exodus tells us again to honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when we did our show last week, we were focusing predominantly on Medicaid planning, how to protect assets, how to take care of the you know, surviving spouse. And our regional expert that we had in last week, Gary Gartland, certified elder care attorney, Gary, welcome back, by the way, is come back this week to really finish our conversation. And when I say finish our conversation, one of the things that we started to look at was, you know, we're dealing with all the financial attributes of an older person protecting their assets. But what about the day-to-day? And when I say the day-to-day, making decisions on their behalf, making sure that you have the right documents in place so that you can make things happen once somebody gets to the point that they need someone to step in and represent them and to take care of things in their business affairs and financial affairs for them. So with that in mind, I'd like to welcome back our guest again, Gary Garland, certified elder care attorney. Gary, welcome back. Frank, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So Gary... One of the things that we had spoken about was the idea that, you know what, everybody, I shouldn't say everybody, but most people get some estate planning done. They get their will done. Maybe they get a living will done. And sometimes they just get this, you know, a simple document, which is a power of attorney, and they just go out and they sign it. But does it really represent what they want? And so what I'd like to do and spend some time, and if you can explain for our listeners, what is it that a power of attorney should do for them and can do for them? So why don't we just start with that this week? So, Gary, if you would. Frank, my pleasure. Um, The power of attorney allows the principal, who's the person making it, to specify an agent, also sometimes called an attorney, in fact, to act on their behalf. And there are different types of powers of attorney you can have. One type that I don't think we're going to discuss today is the health care power of attorney. But the financial power of attorney, which we were to discuss today, has a few different flavors. There's the immediate power of attorney, which takes effect once you sign it. There's the springing power of attorney that only takes effect upon, say, incapacity of the principal. There's general powers of attorney, which are very broad in scope. There are limited powers of attorney, which may be, for example, my real estate attorney can handle the closing of my house, but they can't open my mail. Uh, And then there's Uh, durable powers of attorney which survive the principal's incapacity and there are some that I just always recommend and it's a permutation of what we just discussed and that's the immediate durable general power of attorney it's not as complicated as it sounds but they are critical to have now Gary as you know when I hear about this the person that we're giving this to it sounds like we're giving them a lot of responsibility and we're giving them a lot of access fair assumption on this? I'd say more access and power than responsibility, but you want to be wise on who you're choosing. I don't recommend an ex-spouse. <laughs> Good point. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that we're choosing, though, a person that's going to be very responsible and that would truly have our best interest at heart all the time, not someone that is a little manipulative or anything like that. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is, is that you know, I've seen in dealing with families over the years is every once in a while I can have, you know, one of the kids seem to be trying to manipulate, you know, an estate plan or whatever the case might be. 
And you have to just be very conscious of what you're doing because once you give someone these powers of attorney or whatever, these people basically have the authority to, to stand in your shoes for the most part. Is that a fair assumption? That's exactly right. Uh, you want to be very careful of your choice of agent or maybe co-agents. And if you have uh, three children, for example, do you want one of them to be able to make decisions? Do you need the signature of two of them? Or one of the things I like to do is name all three but allow them to act by majority. This way we have a little bit of a checks and a balance system. That's a great point, Gary. I I appreciate you bringing that up. So why don't we go through a little bit if you can tell us about the one that you would recommend. Sure. And tell us what that would mean. Sure. The immediate, durable, general power of attorney. So let's start with the word immediate. You sign it. It takes effect right away. We don't have to wait. And when you're healthy, I call this, in a sense, the lazy power of attorney. So, Frank, you execute your power of attorney. You're fine. You go on a cruise. And uh, the plumber, uh, somehow someone calls you up. Your your son calls you up. The pipe broke in your house, and the the plumber wants $300. And your son seems like a nice enough guy, but he doesn't want to reach into his own pocket. But he'd already been put on your bank account. So using the power of attorney, he's able to execute one of your checks, indicating that he's the agent, signing his own name, not yours, even though it's not his own personal account, and he's able to pay that plumber. That's as a convenience. Now, time goes on, uh, you get a little more on in years, and God forbid you're disabled, and now we have to do things. We have to sell your house. We need to do something. You're alive, but you can't act. The same power of attorney is enabling your son, in this example, to then sell your house if necessary, or uh, deal with IRAs, or open your mail, or anything else that we need to have happen. That's the immediate power of attorney. General, because it's very broad, we're not limiting it to just one or two things. And durable, which is what I want the most, is if you're incapacitated, we want a power of attorney that's durable so it will continue to operate versus one that's non-durable so that if you were incapacitated, the power of attorney ends. But that's when we need it the most. It's interesting is, um, you know, when I hear that term durable, because I've heard over the years people say, oh, you don't want durable, you just need a general power of attorney. But from an estate planning and an asset protection for Elder Americans Month, which is what we're focusing on, or even if we should have, you know, one of our clients that has a child that has special needs, that durable power of attorney seems like it's the right place to be. Uh, It's critical. And in fact, uh, you're healthy today, you execute the power of attorney, you have capacity. And if uh, anyone recalls from last week, let's say you have $300,000 with or without a house, and then you become incapacitated and then maybe we want to engage in Medicaid planning, we need that power of attorney to move assets. Very good. Hey, Gary, I've heard over the years people talking about a springing power of attorney, and you know, I've, you know, we, you know, some of our clients have had that recommended to them. Why don't you just take a minute and explain what that is, uh, pros and cons of that as well? Sure. A springing power of attorney is when certain conditions need to be met for the power of attorney to spring into power, into existence. Generally, it's two doctors certifying that you're incapacitated. What I don't like about it is we have to go and pay the doctors to come knocking on your door and basically say you're incapacitated. I just personally don't like it. Where it has a place is, uh, for lack of a better term, if you have somebody who has either some trust concerns, uh, uh, you know, generally I'll see it with a blended marriage and we have separate accounts. When I see separate accounts, I know eight out of ten times, and it's usually the husband who wants a springing power of attorney. But the argument in the community would be, if you can't trust them when you're okay, how can you trust them when two doctors rule you're incapacitated? Good point. 
That's a good point. Is there anything else that we should be discussing as it relates to these powers of attorney before we get into the topic of guardianship? Um, no, I think that's a perfect segue in that uh, – well, I'll let you go, Frank. Very good. So, Gary, you know, if someone didn't have a power of attorney, okay, and we had someone that had special needs, so it could be a child, special needs planning, or we have, you know, uh, a parent or it could be a spouse, and they don't have an appropriate power of attorney in place – what do you do? What's the right thing to do from there? And how do you, you know, what should be happening? Sure, sure. Um, in order to execute a power of attorney, you need capacity. So if we have a disabled child, now if we have a child uh, who's t- 17 and a half, for example, or older, the age of majority happens in New York and New Jersey is 18, although I try to artificially treat it like 21 in my office. So if we have a 17 and a half year old who's got disabilities, if they have, uh, you know, physical disabilities, that's not a mental disability, we don't need a power of attorney unless we're concerned about health issues. But if we have a child who is not mentally capable at age 18, then we're going to need a guardianship. Similarly, if we have an elder or a regular adult, and as they get on, if they lose capacity, if they have not executed a power of attorney while they were competent, they cannot execute one once they're incompetent we are then looking at a guardianship proceeding. And that means we're going to the court and we're having a judge rule that that person called a ward is incapacitated and unable to act on certain things. A plenary guardianship means that the, attorney, um, that the guardian is then able to do everything for that person and that person's lost their ability to act. A limited guardianship would mean that that person, the ward, is unable to do certain things but able to do others. And an example might be a limited guardianship where somebody just is not good with numbers, they can't balance their checkbook, but it's beyond that. The elder is being preyed upon financially, yet the elder has enough capacity to make their own medical decisions. So in a limited guardianship, they may lose their ability to conduct financial transactions, yet they can still specify what they want health-wise although I generally don't see those limited guardianships. And my viewpoint would be, if you're going for a limited guardianship, you're probably going to be back again soon enough anyway. I would just go for a general or plenary guardianship. But that would determine, or be determined by the court-appointed attorney. With a guardianship, you have a court-appointed attorney when you're dealing with someone who's of the age of majority, or you have a guardian ad litem when you're dealing with a minor. Either way, It's somebody appointed by the court to ensure that the ward's best interests are being viewed, and then they make a recommendation to the judge. So it sounds like what happens is is that there's two attorneys involved. There's one that's representing the person that's looking to be appointed, and then there's the other person that the court is actually putting in place to basically say, we want you to look out on this person's best interest to make sure that there's no funny business going on. That's what that sounded like to me. Unless (laughs) you have a very wealthy, incapacitated person— And then you will have more additional attorneys from the other family members fighting to take control of the finances. You rarely see a contested guardianship merely, uh, unless there's emotions involved, on who's going to take care of dad. But if dad's a Hollywood actor and dad has several million dollars and somebody wants the guardianship fees and somebody wants to have control of the finances, then this becomes essentially a divorce within the family. Who's going to get control of dad? And in that instance, more importantly, dad's finances. And as we were mentioning before, but all this could have been avoided had they just had the right type of 
power of attorney in place. Correct. Uh, the power of attorney would obviate the need of the guardianship. What about, you know, because we have a little bit of time on this, what I'd like to know is, is you know, what about as it relates to some of the health care issues? What are some of the things, you know, that people should be putting in place with regard to, you know, um, the power of attorney is here, take care of my finances. Okay, this is how, I, you know, what I want you to do about that. But what about my health care, you know, making decisions and so forth? What should people be looking at with that? Sure. Best practices is that these are separate documents, and occasionally I will see it wrapped into one, which is usually just bad on multiple levels. The doctors don't need to read who's going to open up your mail or who has access to your banking. And similarly, in most families, not all, I view, and I don't want to sound chauvinistic, but the son is the accountant and the daughter is the artist, and sometimes it flips around. In other words, one is better to make the financial decisions and one is better for the medical decisions. And it, it usually is the daughter for the medical. Sometimes it reverses. Sometimes the daughter is the sure. accountant and the son is the artist. You know, each family is different. Sometimes it's the same agent for both. Sometimes it's different agents, and, and there's no right or wrong. And rarely in a family... The husband and wife will pick different of the children to do different functions for each of them, but sometimes it happens. So what happens in the healthcare documents, in New York it's called a healthcare proxy, in New Jersey it's just a healthcare power of attorney, and we're specifying one agent on the medical side to make medical decisions. And if that agent is unable or unwilling, then we go down to the next one, the successive agent. We don't want to have one child saying left, the other child saying right. And the doctor says the door's in the middle, go on out. So we don't want where one child says, take the leg, and the other child says, save the leg, even though there's a greater chance of gangrene and death. We want one voice, one decision maker, and that's what the statutes actually say. But in practice, when I review these documents, I see many attorneys will put down two children together, which is absolutely wrong. You know, when I'm, I'm listening to you go through this, um, how often should these documents be reviewed, updated, changed? Um, are there changes in the law that null and void these contracts or these documents that you put in place? What should people be looking at? I, I generally recommend any estate planning document be reviewed every three years or major life changes. Now, New York recently changed their power of attorney statute around 2009. They didn't do it right, so then they changed it again roughly 2010. So the former four-page New York statutory power of attorney is now about 12 pages, and it's a nightmare to deal with. New Jersey does not at this point have a statutory power of attorney, although they've been speaking about it. Uh, and as far as these documents go, you want to make sure that you've named the agents and you've given them the power or authority you want them to have. Now, in New York, for example, when the statute changed, they grandfathered in the existing powers of attorney, so that did not nullify the existing ones. In New Jersey, in 2004, a case came out in Ray Carey, K-E-R-I, and basically it said that a power of attorney, in order to be able to handle Medicaid planning, should have certain language in it. So that didn't nullify the prior ones, but the case came down and said, going forward, you ought to have some of this stuff within the document. So a 20-year-old power of attorney won't have that. At the same time, that 20-year-old power of attorney should still be in force and effect, However, many institutions want one that's only six months or a year old. And at that point, it's a matter of go fight City Hall. You have to go and fight with the bank or the institution and their legal department until they accept your power of attorney. And we, we've seen this over the years and you know, what we deal with on the financial side. And I would tell you that it's very frustrating on everybody's behalf 
And it's one of those of, you know, you can lose time, you could lose money, because if there were transactions that needed to be done on an account or move a particular security or whatever the case might be, they may actually be in a position where they can't do it. I've seen that happen. And some of the wirehouses are getting tougher, and they're not even saying the power of attorney is no good. They're saying power of attorney is fine, but we're not sure what you're doing is in the best interest of that person, and our loss prevention may not allow us to write you out that check for $4 million. So now you have financial institutions that are actually putting themselves in a position there to make that decision for someone, which is something that nobody wanted to, you know, to have happen. No, but I'm starting to see it more and more. Interesting. For all of our listeners, again, you've been listening to Discovering Responsible Wealth. Again, this is your host, Frank Congelos. Our guest today, Gary Garland, certified elder care attorney with offices in Manalapan, New Jersey, and in Manhattan. For all of our listeners, we'd like to wish you a truly blessed week. If you have any questions, you can write to us at the Institute of Responsible Wealth, 2431 Atlantic Avenue, Manasquan, New Jersey, or you can email us at info at com. Thank you and have a blessed week.